good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. We'll see that we are continuing in a series on Joseph. It was the spring of 1980. I was nine years old. I had at this time seen the movie Star Wars roughly 47 times. I had a sizable collection of action figures. I was making my own lightsaber in the garage. And there, there was an announcement of an upcoming movie release that I could not be more excited about. And so in the spring of 1980, my parents took me to see The Empire Strikes Back. Oh yes, oh yes. And, and I, was, I, I, I literally, I had dreams about this movie, daydreams about this movie. I had no idea what the plot was going to entail. I just knew that the empire would probably strike back. I knew that regardless of how the empire struck, that the rebel alliance would somehow overcome and, and thwart the empire. I knew that Luke Skywalker would be victorious and that Han and Chewie and Leah, they would all share a laugh at the end of the movie and maybe get an award just like at the end of Star Wars. Uh, and, and, and just so you know, the movie, when they took me to see it, it was epic. In fact, all of the movie ranking review sites that I looked at placed The Empire Strikes Back at the very best of all of the Star Wars movies, and I think there are 30 or 40 of them now. But I sat in my seat, and I was blown away. Ice battles on Hoth. You've got Jedi training with Yoda. They fly the Millennium Falcon purposefully into an asteroid belt? Don't they know the odds of survival? I I was so excited about watching that movie. But but friends, and and I apologize for this 36-year-old spoiler alert. That movie does not have the good guys winning in the end. It it, it blew me away. Han Solo was frozen in carbonite, and C-3PO was in pieces, and Darth Vader was Luke's father? Somebody in the first service said, what? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And as the credits rolled, I sat in my seat in the movie theater, and I, I wept big boy tears. I could not believe this was the end. This is it. This is how the movie ends. I I couldn't believe it's over. And of course it wasn't over, but I had to wait three years for the next installment. And and what's funny about that and how it relates to today is you're going to see that that is really, really similar to the story of Joseph's life. That, that, that there is this, there's this ending or a seeming ending, and yet it's right in the middle. It's like a middle episode, and it's over, but it's not over. And, and, and the reason why that's important in Joseph's story is because it's also important in yours and in mine. You see, as long as your heart's still beating, you're still in the middle of it. You're still in a middle episode. And, and, and so maybe we have to, we have to learn this, that, that life is not for the faint-hearted. And, and when we're in that middle episode, when it's not turning out the way we thought it, it should, the way that a nine-year-old brain thought that it should wrap up like this, and it's not wrapping up like this, 
that we have to, we have to hold on to something that will allow us to face whatever it is that we have to face. And so let's just jump in. Let's see what the story of Joseph has for us today. It starts in verse 37. If you have your Bibles, open them up, Genesis 37, and we'll start in verse 12. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, it's on your notes. It'll be on the screen as well, and we'll just jump in. It says, soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along, Jacob said. Then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. Okay, so last week we, we started this, this journey. We talked about how there was some dysfunction in this family. The, the dad, Jacob, had a favorite, Joseph, the brothers were jealous of dad's favor over Joseph, and so there was animosity. There was bitterness and jealousy brewing among the brothers. And, and Jacob, the father, actually gave Joseph a symbol of his favor. It was a beautiful robe, um, ornate, colorful. It was also a robe with long sleeves, which was uh, designated a supervisor kind of a situation. So it was not only that dad loved J or, or Joseph the most, but that there was a belief in Joseph and even um, a sense that Joseph was the trustworthy one. And, by the way, it wasn't just dad that the brothers had a problem with loving on Joseph. Now it seemed like God was in it because Joseph was having these dreams that seemed to indicate that the brothers and even mom and dad would end up bowing down to him at some point. And so there was all this kind of thing going on. And, and again, dad, Jacob, he, he, he really did trust Joseph. And that's why he sent Joseph. He said, hey, your brothers are at Shechem. Go and check them. And, and, so, and so Joseph did. So, so let's keep going. It says, when he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for, he asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told him. They have moved on from here. But I heard them say, let's go on to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found them there. Now, whenever you're reading the Bible, I would, I would always encourage you to read it prayerfully. And when you come across a passage like this, I, I think it's important to ask, well, Lord, what is this here for? What, what is this passage in particular trying to say to me or inform me of? And, and as I was reading this passage this week, I did that exact same exercise and as near as I can tell, it's, it, of course, it's a part of the story, you know, and so it's just telling the story. But it's also reinforcing why Jacob sent Joseph in the first place. In other words, Jacob knew that these other boys of his were maybe not that trustworthy. Maybe they wouldn't always go where they said they were going or do what they said they were going to be doing. And so that's why he sent Joseph in the first place. So Joseph goes down to Shechem, and they're not there. And then some guy comes, oh, they're not here. I heard him say they're going to Dothan. And you could just see Joseph pull out his clipboard, and he starts writing a report to dad about his brothers, you know. Item number one, not where they said they were going to be. 
Item number two, they moved their flocks without sending word of where they were going to be. Item number three, uh, the only reason I know where they're going to be is because a stranger overheard their plans. Item number four, never trust them with the ATM pin number, you know. You could just see that this is, again, the paradigm that is built in the family. And so Joseph has now found them, and it says this in verse 18. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Suddenly it's turned very dark very quickly. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. That's a, that's a well. We can tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben, one of the brothers, heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. This is an interesting picture of sibling rivalry, is it not? And just kind of thinking about all of our families of origin, if you had brothers or sisters, you know that there's some, there's some measure of sibling rivalry that is normal. I was just talking to a few people this week. My wife, Jody, she's the oldest of six girls. And yes, there was fighting between the sisters. Uh, in my family, my brother Mark and I used to put my sister Sarah in a sleeping bag and hang her over the rafters in the garage, you know, for fun. Um, I was talking to my buddy Lee, and he and his sister got in a fight, and she was filing her nails with one of those metal filers, and she stabbed him in the arm with it. That's pretty awesome. Uh, but that's like normal sibling rivalry stuff, right? But, but, but this, this is like a whole, like, like here are the Kardashians, and then here is Joseph's family, right? Like, this is a complete new kind of place for for this brokenness. And this is what it says in verse 23. When Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. What's significant about this? They took the symbol of his favor with his father. They took the symbol of his authority... And they stripped him of his identity. And that's exactly what the enemy of God wants to do to you and to me. When the enemy comes against us, the first thing that that is assaulted is your identity as a son or a daughter of God. He wants us to forget who we are and whose we are. And so the assault will come, and, and, and the lies will come, and, and you are not who you thought you were, and you are not the beloved child of your father, and you have no authority, and you don't even know who you are. You don't have your identity in the Lord. That's where the assault always comes. They start by ripping the robe off of him. And then it says, they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Uh, Now, the cistern was empty. The well was empty. There was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. 
Judas said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. That'd be a hassle. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. That's an example of mercy right there by Judah. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Here's the first fill-in. Betrayal is a knife in the back inserted by friends. A knife in the back inserted by friends. Do you know when the pain comes in your life from your enemies, that's not betrayal. That's just pain. That's just struggle. That's just trial. But when the pain comes from somebody you thought was your friend, from somebody whose job it was to care for you or to support you, If your family, all a family is required to do is love and nurture. And when betrayal comes from your family, right? that's where the devastation of betrayal comes. From somebody you think has your back and instead they're just studying it to figure out where to put the knife in. That's betrayal. And some of you are here today and, and you do feel betrayed. You do feel like this has happened to you. And, and from somebody who should have known better. Maybe from a parent. And you expected care from them. And you, you wanted, you desperately wanted love and support. And what you got, you got was, was put down. And you got challenged. And, and, so, and somebody just, just saying, you don't have what it takes. And you desperately long to hear that you did. Betrayal. Or maybe from a friend. Somebody that you really did trust and you entered into some kind of a partnership, even if it was just a friendship where you were going to support one another. You're going to pray for one another and then you find out that that person is, has used even the things that you shared in confidence that you needed prayer for, but they've used that against you. It's betrayal. See, some of you have, have lived that and if that's, if that's your story, I just want to tell you I'm so sorry. I am so sorry that that has happened to you. But I also want you to know that if you have been betrayed, you're actually in pretty good company. You know, Joseph was betrayed for just a handful of coins. Jesus was betrayed by one of his 12 for, again, a handful of coins. I, I just want to encourage you, you are not alone when you're betrayed. But I do want to encourage you this, and you might want to write down this action item. Don't let betrayal be your burial. Don't let betrayal be the end of your story. Don't let that decide your future for you. Instead, the the challenge that I'd bring is that as we press past betrayal, as we seek to forgive and, and lay down bitterness like we talked about last week, As we seek to do that, what we need to remember is this, that humans, that that fallen people, that mere mortals, that that we are broken and we will often let down and we will often betray, but that should propel us to the truth that God never will, right? The, The betrayal of men should remind us that God never will betray. The fallenness of men, the the unreliableness 
of men should remind us of the reliability of God. And it should push us to that truth. I found this passage in Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and who have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. And what, what an incredibly beautiful and poetic passage that talks about the, the challenge that if we place our trust in mere mortals, if we turn our heart from the Lord and we put all of our trust and confidence in humans and in human relationships, then it says we're like stunted shrubs in a salty land. <laughs> I like that phrase. Salt, I don't know why. I like it. It's cool. Salty land. A lot of salt in that land. But when you put your hope in the Lord, your confidence in him, when he is the source of your strength, then it says your roots go down deep like trees by a riverbank. And, and you're vital and fruitful no matter what kind of drought, no matter what kind of storms, you will bear fruit. And that's the challenge, that we let the, the reality that, that humans, that men and women will be unreliable, but that God himself will be reliable. Don't let betrayal be the end of your story. Don't let it be your burial. Instead, trust in the Lord. Okay, let's go to the next verse, verse 29. Sometime later, Reuben, remember Reuben? He's the one who said, hey, let's just throw him in the cistern. Reuben had a plan to free Joseph. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. When he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, The boy is gone. What will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Notice they didn't say, doesn't this robe belong to our brother? They also didn't say, doesn't this robe belong to Joseph? They said, Don't, doesn't this robe belong to your son? It's just one more sign of their contempt. And this is how the father Jacob responds. Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Now this brings us to the next truth about generational sin. And generational sin is family patterns that repeat themselves. Family patterns that repeat themselves from one generation, they find their manifestation again in the subsequent generation. And why I bring this up is because if you know the story and if you've read through the book of Genesis, you know that this is the swindler himself being swindled. If you know the story about Jacob, you know that earlier in his story, when he was a young man in his father's house, that he swindled his brother Esau out of his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
You know that later on in that story, then he deceived his father, Isaac, who was blind at the time. He, he deceived him and swindled his brother Esau out of his firstborn blessing. He basically took everything, leaving Esau nothing. And the way that Jacob was able to pull these things off is by the help of his mother, who had a favorite son. Her favorite son was Jacob. Does any of this sound familiar, by the way? So you see then that Jacob was a favorite son, and as he's a father, he had a favorite son. You see that Jacob learned the art of the swindle, and his boys have perfected it. And that idea of generational sin, that idea of family patterns repeating themselves again and again and again, I just want you to understand that it, it, it's, it, it cannot continue with us. And so if you're filling in the blanks, the action item here is really simple, that we need to build healthy faith patterns in our home, and we need to break the cycles that we have inherited. Break the, the, the cycles of generational sin, the cycles of brokenness. So in your home, live humbly and joyfully with Jesus, and then in your home, in the, the family unit that God is building through you, that, that you make a commitment to break these cycles. So let me just ask it kind of clearly. I just want you to process personally. What is it that you need to cut off right now? See, it starts with the word identify. You've got to identify it. So what are the addictions that you've witnessed and maybe felt yourself drawn to? What are the medications that you saw the previous generation go toward and now you feel like you need to medicate your life that way? What are, what are just the character defects, the, maybe the, the, the quick explosion of rage? That's what you saw, now that's what you manifest. How about the blame shift? One of your parents never, ever owned a single mistake, and now you see that happen in your life. See, whatever it is, maybe the distance, your parents were distant from you, they, they weren't loving, they, they weren't connected, and now you see the same thing happening between you and your kids. Whatever it is, identify it. You've got to identify it. And then once you identify it, you just submit it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, Jesus, this is what I've seen and this is what I've learned. This was the family paradigm that I grew up in and I do not want it to continue to the next generation. Would you please enter in and help me break this cycle right now? So you've got to identify it, and then you have to submit it to the Lord Jesus. You've got to break that family or that generational cycle and then develop a healthy faith pattern in your life. The next verse is verse 34. It says this. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say. And then he would weep. Wow. It's just a picture of, of a father's sorrow for a beloved son. His, his sorrow, his grief is as deep for Joseph as his love was intense. Grief is always going to be proportional to our love. 
And it's interesting to see here, it's, it's interesting to see that, that he could not be comforted, would not be comforted. There was so much pain. And, and if you've ever lost a child, I've never lost a child, but if you've lost a child, if, if you've ever had to bury a son or a daughter to untimely death, then, then you can understand the grief that he feels. It's devastating. This is the lowest rung of the ladder of sorrow. This is the hardest, most intense thing anyone is going to have to face in this lifetime. And as you look at the whole passage, right, you look at the whole passage until here, you see that, that this is the very bottom rung of our grief, but it's also the place where our hope in the Lord becomes so vitally real. That this is where a confidence in the Lord Jesus actually can bring us life when life has dealt us death blows, knowing that one day we will be reunited with our loved ones in eternity. But as you summarize this chapter so far, you've seen betrayal by family members. You've seen generational sin and the, the, the passing of, of the knowledge, the art of the swindle from one generation to the next. You've seen a grief as deep as grief can get. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I mean, isn't this fun? Aren't we having a blast? But at this point, as you're reading through the chapter, at this point, as you're reading through the life of Joseph, you need to recognize that the, the music begins to change it's tuned just a little bit. And very faintly, on, on a gentle breeze, you begin to hear no, notes of hope and notes of grace. And, and there's just even notes of uncertainty about what's coming next. But, but the tone, the emotional tone of the whole thing begins to shift when you read these words. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. And for those of you who know the rest of the story, you actually know that this is great writing because it's, it's a foreshadow. It's the device known as foreshadowing. And now there is a recognition that there is a new chapter that the Lord is writing. But right now, th this part of it, it just starts with that word, meanwhile. And here's what you need to write down somewhere on your notes. You need to write down that God is at work in the meanwhile. That God is at work in the meantime. The, 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 the meanwhile is where we find ourselves so often, but that is where God begins to write a new chapter. And you recognize where Joseph is, and, and, and you don't really get much of the inner dialogue with Joseph. You don't know really what's going on in his heart or his mind. You can imagine he's devastated. You can imagine he's devastated by the betrayal of his brothers. He, you could imagine he's devastated that his, his robe, his prized possession was ripped from him. And, and the authority and, and the beloved nature of his relationship with his dad now, that's destroyed. You can imagine he's terrified of what's happening to him as he's being sold into slavery and taken off into exile. You can imagine all these things. You can even imagine that he might have thought, you know what? God's plans for me must be done. The, 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 those dreams I had, now they're going to come to nothing. You could imagine all those things. 
But you'd be wrong. That's not where Joseph ends up landing. That's not where he ends up uh, resting in terms of how he's going to choose to live. No, as the story of his life continues in Egypt, you will see Joseph has hope. Now he's in Potiphar's estate. Oh, and by the way, Potiphar works for the Pharaoh of Egypt in his palace. And Joseph doesn't know what all of this means yet, but he does know one thing. He's convinced that God still has a plan. And friends, that is the definition of hope. For you and for me today, the definition of hope is knowing that God still has a plan for me. See, when you're convinced that God has a plan for you, you can face whatever it is that you're going through with courage. You can excel even when you feel stuck. If your heart is still beating, that means that you're in the meanwhile, and in the meanwhile, God is still at work, just like he was in Joseph's life. God still has a plan. God is still carrying you. Even in the meanwhile, even in the messiness, God is preparing, he's plowing the soil, he's building and bringing to fruition his plan for you, his plan for me, his plan for your loved ones and the people in your life that he wants to be influenced by you. And that's what's happening in Joseph's life. God is still at work behind the scenes. God is still bringing his plan for Joseph to fruition. And by the way, God's plan is not just a plan for Joseph. Those of you who are in the know, you know God's plan is actually a plan of salvation for his brothers and his father and the salvation of the entire known world at the time. God's plan for Joseph is God's plan for Joseph, but not merely for Joseph. It's much, much bigger. And that's true for your story as well. God's plan is for you, but not merely for you. His plan's for you, but not only for you. Because his plan is always going to be bigger. It's always going to be for more. It's going to be for your loved ones. It's going to be for the people you influence. It's going to be to change something important about the trajectory of our culture or the world. God's plans are for you, but they're for more than just you. And here's the interesting thing. Joseph, he could have assumed that he had hit a dead end, sold into slavery, taken into Egypt. It's over. But he had no way of knowing that God had actually placed him on an express elevator straight to the place where God wanted him to be so that his plans could come to fruition. You see, he was sold into Potiphar's house. Potiphar worked for Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the known world at the time. If Potiphar gets angry and throws someone into jail, what kind of jail is he going to get thrown into? Pharaoh's jail. And and that's where the story is going to go. But you need to recognize Joseph had no idea of, of what God was working behind the scenes. But God did. And so the challenge for you, no matter what you're facing, the challenge for me, no matter what circumstances I have to face, the challenge is that we hold on to hope. Because we can't see behind the scenes, but God knows exactly what's happening. So we hold on to hope. We choose to hold on to our relationship with Jesus. We choose to trust and place our confidence in the Lord. We hold on to hope. 
See, hope is that tangible thing. Hope is that thing that can bring us strength and courage when we feel like failing. My buddy Pastor Pat was talking to me this week, and to date, he said, he has three different times had to go on a double date with his wife and another couple through a haunted corn maze. And, and he's, like, he's like, Mike, I hate these things. He's like, I absolutely, they, they terrorize me, he said. I, honestly, I, I asked him, I, I thought it was just kind of curious and funny. And so I, he said, every time I go into these things and the, and the people jump out or the zombies or whatever it is, the skeletons or something, he said, every time, he's like, my knees shake and I collapse on the ground in the muddy corn maze. He said, I would be, I lay there shaking like a man struck by the Holy Spirit. He says, if I don't, he goes, I'm not there to hold my wife Leah. He said, she's there to hold me up. I'm like, why do you go? I don't know why I go. But, but, but here's the thing. Look, when things unexpected jump out at him, right, when, when things are terrorizing him in the night, he needs to hold on to somebody. And thank God his wife is really strong, okay? <laughs> but look, when, when you're going through life, and, and things are jumping out at you. Trials are lunging at you. Challenges lunging at you. Temptation from all sides in the dark. You need to hold on to something. You need to hold on to hope. And you need to hold on to Jesus Christ as the source of our hope. You see, Jesus is the source of our hope. Christianity, by the way, it's, it's the only thought process, it's the only spiritual construct that is built entirely on hope. Resurrection cannot occur without crucifixion. But we can't get through that without hope. See, our faith is predicated on hope. The hope in Jesus that we have, that we've placed our faith and our confidence in, the conviction that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord and Savior, that he claimed to be, and then he rose from the grave proving that he was. Our faith is built on hope, and so we need to hold on to hope. And I know hope sounds soft and kind of intangible and gentle, uh, but in fact, hope has incredible strength. Hope starts revolutions. Hope ends wars. Hope saves lives. Hope is tough as steel. And the scripture says this, and this hope, the hope that we have in Jesus, this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You might want to circle the, the phrase, will not lead to disappointment. See, even when things seem hopeless, we hold on to hope. Even if we've been betrayed by our brothers, we hold on to hope. Even if we've been thrown into a pit, we hold on to hope. Even if we've been sold into slavery, we hold on to hope. And the hope we hold on to is that God still has a plan for us. That, that, that he is at work in the meanwhile. And, and Joseph models this. He chose to hold on to hope. He chose to remain convinced that God would fulfill his purposes in his life. The scripture says this in Romans 8.25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Please circle the words eagerly wait. That's a part of holding on to hope. We wait with eagerness, perseverance. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in our confident hope. 
be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. Circle that phrase, keep on praying. That's another way we hold on to hope, is we choose to keep on praying. We remain intimate with the Lord. We, e- we eagerly wait with perseverance for his promises to come to fruition. And friends, the Lord's plans for your life, the Lord, he says, has these plans for us, plans to give us a hope and a future, plans to prosper us and not to harm us. That, that these are the plans that he has for us. And, and I don't know how specifically they will play themselves out in your life or in my life, but God will fulfill his promises for us. And I'll tell you exactly when. We talked to the creative team this week. I know exactly when God will fulfill his promises for you. And you could write these down. He will fulfill his promises for you and for me now and soon and later and in eternity. Okay? That's a little bit of a joke, but it's also true. That that God will, he will fulfill his promises for us. You can bet on that. And maybe they'll be now. And maybe it'll be soon, and maybe it'll be later, and if you've lost a loved one, in eternity. But friends, God is faithful, and he will fulfill his promises for us. And you might think you're in exile right now. You might feel even like you're in some sort of slavery. Maybe you've convinced yourself that your family situation right now is just indentured servitude. Maybe you've convinced yourself right now that your job is a dead end. You've convinced yourself that your marriage is a study in stuckness. But I want to challenge you to hold on to hope. You see, hope has some practical expressions to it. Hope works itself out in beautiful, tangible ways in our lives. But you're going to have to come back next week to find out what those ways are. (laughs) You'll see in Joseph's life how hope reveals itself in beautiful and profound ways. And it's going to be incredibly encouraging to us as we travel this journey ourselves. But right now, I want you to look at this last verse on your outline because this is a verse that sums all of this up. It sums up why we're studying Joseph. It sums up why we study the scriptures in the first place. It sums up what we're supposed to do with our hope. It says this. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Right now, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's ask Jesus to give us his hope as he fulfills his promises in our lives. Jesus, we want to thank you for the way that you love us, the way that you know us, the way that you have plans for us uniquely. Thank you so much for that, Lord Jesus. We love you. And we even thank you that your plans for us are not merely for us, but that your plans are for us to actually live in such a way, to to manifest your loves in such a way that we are then a blessing and and hope bringers for others in our lives, our family, those we live around, our neighbors, those we work with and school with. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be at work in the meanwhile, that you would continue to work behind the scenes in ways that we do not know and could not guess, but we declare that we trust in you, that you are at work, that you will bring to fruition the promises 
and the plans that you have for us. We are so thankful for this truth. We rest in it now. We stand in it, and we hold on to this hope. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Mm -hmm.